0: If you're not upsetting at least someone, you're probably not leading. And I know that might sound a little bit strange, but it, and it doesn't go the other way. It doesn't go the way of if you're upsetting people, you're clearly leading. No.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome to Reaching Your Goals. My name is Hannah Herbst, and I'm a certified leadership and career coach and a management consultant with an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. Reaching Your Goals is a career focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to find out what it takes to reach your goals. We will talk about anything from knowing yourself and leading with purpose to growing your self confidence or becoming more productive. Whatever it takes to get one step closer to living a fulfilled professional life. My mission is simple, to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness and have some fun along the way. I'm here today with Nate Petit. Nate is an Associate Professor of Management and Organizations and the Founding Director of the Leadership Accelerator at NYU Stern School of Business. Nate teaches leadership courses both in the MBA and the Executive Education Programs. He has won numerous awards for his research and teaching, including being named to Poets and Quants' 40 Most Outstanding Professors Under 40, being awarded the Stern Distinguished Teaching Award, or being voted the MBA Professor of the Year at Stern in 2019. As I share my intro, I also got my MBA at NYU Stern. I didn't meet Nate back then though, simply for the reason that I graduated two years before he joined the faculty in 2011. I did, however, attend his leadership training for high potentials in the fall of 2021 and simply loved his class. He was so insightful and inspirational, so it made common sense to ask him to join me on the show. And as luck would have it, he said yes. I look forward to the conversation today. We will learn from Nate's leadership wisdom and focus on topics such as the push and pull principle. Welcome, Nate. For having me, I don't
0: know, like misfortune or fortune, <laughs> however we want to talk about those things. But I appreciate the the charitable introduction. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: How how are you doing today?
0: I'm okay. We went uh, took the kids skiing in Vermont over the weekend, oh, nice. and um, yeah, and my uh, my 43 year old body is realizing that I may need to make that transition from snowboarding to skiing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, the, like, constant up and down of, like, get off the lift and fall down on the ground and put your bind, your boots in your bindings and then get your body up. I'm like, I need to just learn how to ski because <laughs> I feel like I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so there was, like, a, a sad, real, like, a very, like, a very clear, visible um, example of aging. Oh, come it's on. Like I, need to, I need to make the transition.
1: 43, that's young. <laughs> And let me get started with a few rapid-fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. If you could have a meal anywhere, what would it be and where would you be?
0: Ooh, I like that question. Um,
1: and I'm getting hungry now.
0: <laughs> I know, me too. So this may sound this may sound strange, but actually what I think it would be is there's this chicken barbecue like that's made called like Cornell chicken barbecue. And I don't exactly know what's involved in it. So I I got involved with it because I went to Cornell and my dad actually also did. And he learned how to make this stuff. Now, no offense to my dad, but it wouldn't be his version of it that I would eat. Um, but like growing up we used to go to this local County fair and there would just be these like huge troughs where they're making probably like thousands of these things. And they're just laid out across these two metal sheets, and then you like you see these like sweaty men just like flipping it over. But the chicken takes like three four hours to make it, but it is so delicious. And I just could imagine like if it could be anything like a nice summer kind of like everything. It's very rural. There's like no noise. Just a few, you know, few people around, and you're just eating this delicious chicken barbecue. It's all over your hands. It's all over your face. Your family's a mess, like, eating it as well. But there's something very, I think, very, like, comforting and very accessible about that.
1: Nice. It sounds like home.
0: It's very homey that way. And, I, you know, have mixed feelings about home at times. But um, it is something that it, it brings back good memories. And in the last couple of years, uh, my brothers and I have kind of taken over trying to uh, to learn how to make that so um so cool has a special place in that regard
1: and say what do you prefer emails or phone calls
0: phone calls for sure i'm old school i um i think i think a lot better when i'm pacing around and it's a lot harder to pace around reading an email than it is to uh having it having a phone call and a lot is missed with uh, with email. I mean, email is obviously faster, and for some things it makes sense. But I want to hear the inflection in people's voices. I want to hear the pauses. I, I want to because there, there's so much information that goes beyond the specific words that are used. Like, I feel like I've really interacted with the person. I, email's not the same way, but. There's a time and a place, obviously, and also I guess there's a big caveat on fr- who do I want. There's some people I just want. <laughs> <know>. uh,
1: <laughs> so anybody who's receiving your email, it's a sign.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't Say, really
1: <laughs> so what do you need to be at your best?
0: Pretty simple. I need uh, I need sleep and caffeine, <laughs> <laughs> and I need my. Uh, my young daughter's not to be banging on my door. Um, it's pretty simple at this point. I just, I, I need something that, that appears like isolation where my mind can, can do its thing rather than um, constantly feeling like I'm having to put out fires or a fire is about to be started by one of them.
1: So what is your favorite self catch?
0: That's a good question. Um, you probably haven't gotten this answer before, but mowing the lawn. I find it to be very therapeutic. Um, It's both like, I like it because it's, it's very like the progress is very visible. It's, I know that it's not over until I'm done. Like I I have to finish. Um, And there's just something kind of almost meditative about the kind of back and forth and seeing your progress. And also, you know, you're, you're walking, your heart rate gets up a little bit. Uh, But I always feel much better and my mind is clearer after I've done that.
1: And how would your students describe you in one word?
0: Well, hyphenate this one. They might say listener, but I think they might also say something like reformed frat boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I need to know more about that part.
0: (laughs) They're like, I know he's done some crap in his life, but he seems like he has it together now a little bit more (laughs) than, than he maybe did a few years back. You have to ask them.
1: And what is the last book that you've read?
0: last book that I read? That's a good question. It's uh, Choosing Courage by Jim Dieter, who is actually my advisor in, in grad school. He's a professor at Darden. But that was the, the last book that I've read um, cover to cover and actually something that I, I assigned to a number of my students now.
1: And I know that you're qualified as a professional natural bodybuilder. What's important about being fit?
0: so for me it is and, and i'm not anymore
1: yes but you were at some point so it still sounds very very cool
0: there's a lot to that question there's a few things like i grew up very blue collar lower middle class and there's a lot of things that money can buy if you're willing to work hard enough money can't buy like a physique and strength and it was a way that it, my hard work it's it's you know there's all sorts of gadgets and fads and machines out there for working out at the end of the day it's about knowledge and um consistency and if you understand what to eat and if you're willing to work hard enough you can get things that other people can't buy you can't buy your way into to a you know a certain physique a certain level of strength um for, but it's also i mean for my own mental health, I found it to be very good. Um, I do well with routine. I think discipline begets discipline. And so being disciplined in that domain would translate to other domains, um, as well. I wouldn't say progress is linear, but I progress approaches linear when it comes to that. If you, if you do the right things and are consistent over time, you will see progress. So it's really, in a sense, the idea of like competing in bodybuilding was really an outcome of something that I probably just would have done anyway. It was really about the process of doing it that I got a heck of a lot more out of than the actual competitions themselves. Um, In particular, when when you get that lean, you're not in a great spot. You don't want to be that lean for that long. It's really not very healthy. It tanks your hormones. You you could get very irritable. You don't have a lot of energy. And so you kind of want to like get down to the certain body fat level and get down there and kind of get out of there relatively quickly. So when you're, when you're looking in some sense, your best, you're actually not especially healthy.
1: I read that for bodybuilding competitions, the people stop drinking or they drink only very little, making sure that the muscles really show. So it doesn't sound very healthy.
0: My understanding is that it you you don't really need to to tank your water in the way that people would be or to, you know drop your sodium levels down ridiculously low, but even if you are well hydrated, just being having body fat that's that low, it's it's controlled starvation. Like you're you're not in a great place when you're when you're that lean.
1: And next question: What does a fulfilled professional life mean to you?
0: I'm most fulfilled when I'm in class. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm very much a person whose mind is rarely in the present moment. You know, I'm, I'm thinking off in the future. I'm thinking about the past. I'm, you know, I, I don't know if this is just me, but there'll be moments where I'll be driving and I'll just think about something dumb I did in high school. And I'm like, why are you thinking about this? Um, the only time that I'm really in the present moment is when I'm in the classroom and it's kind of in like so if you think about this idea of mindfulness or presence it's really about the only time that i am fully or mostly fully present and that tells me it's very much a thing that i should be doing because i'm not thinking about the future i'm not thinking about the past i'm just thinking about the now and i do really love the the research side and the the curiosity and the, the not knowing and even though you know running studies and not getting back what you think you're going to get back or should get back can be frustrating. Eventually you figure it out and that's really cool too, but I wouldn't be able to just do that. The teaching side is, is necessary for me. It, it's fatiguing physically, but psychologically it can be energizing.
1: And what is the most important quality in a leader?
0: The one that I keep talking about is having some level of courage. And this kind of harkens back to the point I was saying earlier about the book I read most recently choosing courage. And it's probably not a surprise that that's it because I was influenced so much by Jim when I was a graduate student. Um, One of my favorite phrases or pieces of advice that I I've been given at some point is that if you're not upsetting, at least someone you're probably not leading. And I know that might sound a little bit strange, but it, and it doesn't go the other way. It doesn't go the way of if you're upsetting people, you're clearly leading. No, you could just be. <laughs> but if you're not upsetting someone, you're probably not leading. And people kind of pull back on that often. But the reason I think it rings true is leadership is so much about change. And even though people might have problems with the status quo, they're afraid of the uncertainty of a different status quo. And so someone will be bothered by the idea of changing what it is that we do um, day to day. And it takes some degree of courage to be the person that says, no, I'm going to stand by this in the face of resistance. Um, there's this Churchill quote that I, I really like that, that really embodies how I think about leadership and in, in this element of both push and pull. And I, I don't think this is exactly the quote, but it's something to the effect of courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. It's also what it takes to sit back and listen like sometimes it requires some degree of courage to sit back and give the reins to someone else for a while, let them go. Um, And that can be uncomfortable, particularly if you're insecure in your position as a leader, but it's so necessary because we know that this kind of domineering, always asserting person who just never deviates from what they're thinking is going to be less effective than the person who's willing to take the time to, to listen and to cede control to other people. So there's a ton. I mean, empathy is part of it. Um, perspective taking is is part of it. Uh, but I really come down to courage because if you're driven by fear, you're never going to, to be able to lead.
1: And last question for the rapid fire. What is the best advice you've been offered in your personal or professional life?
0: If you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough. And what I mean by that is it resonates with me. And it's a question I pose to my students. Like what's more likely if you've never failed, if you're the person that's constantly succeeding, like you're getting perfect job reviews, you're getting great grades and everything you do, um, you're kind of applauded by everybody that you're around. What's more likely that you are just an incredibly exceptional person or that you have non-consciously put together a set of experiences That you know already that you can succeed at. I think we'd all like to think of ourselves as exceptional, but it's probably the latter. It's probably we're putting ourselves in situations that don't really stretch uh, stretch us. And so I try to think like if there isn't some risk of failure, I'm probably not trying hard enough. I don't mean in terms of effort, but I mean in terms of stretching you have to live it. Like there's that thing, like what you do speak so loudly. I cannot hear what you say. Like the actions matter as much as, or more than the words, frankly.
1: And with that, let's deep dive in. Say, so tell me what are the key milestones that led you to where you are today?
0: <laughs> I didn't recognize some of them as milestones when I was going through them. It was only a kind of this retrospective evaluation of my life and you know, I'm a little skeptical of whether or not that's tr- this is actually true or not. But it's how I make sense of it. So, growing up, I was often in let's call them leadership positions. Now, whether I was leading or not is another story. But you know, positions hierarchically um, in musical groups, in athletic groups. It turned out when I reflected on those things, I cared about the music, I cared about the athletics. But if I think about it, what I was, what I spent a lot of time thinking about was how we were going about doing what it is that we were doing. It didn't so much matter the thing that we were doing. It was, I cared about how we were going about it. Like, how do you motivate people? Who's in conflict with whom? Um, what are the elements of the past that are affecting how people are interpreting today? And when I got to college, similar ish things happened. I ended up in certain call them again, positions of leadership My girlfriend at the time, this was senior year in college, was a psychology major. And I was a statistics major uh, in college. That was an incredible mistake. It's not great at statistics. I I should not have done that. Um, But I did. And I remember being at her apartment and picking up a book on industrial organizational psychology. And I was just flipping through it and I was realizing like, this is actually providing a vocabulary to all the things that I think about automatically. I didn't realize this existed as a field. And I remember talking to her about it and we would talk about these ideas and it just felt very natural to me to be thinking in these terms because that's how I thought, but I didn't realize it was a discipline. I didn't realize it was a field and being pretty lost in terms of what I was going to do. I knew I didn't want to do anything dealing with statistics I started then taking classes in this field and it was over the course of a year, this realization that this is what I should be doing. I don't know in what capacity I will be doing it. I I don't know if I'll be a practitioner. I don't know if I'll just want to manage. I don't know if maybe, maybe I'll be a professor. I I wasn't sure, but I just knew I wanted to do this um, because it's what I was automatically thinking about. Like I couldn't, I couldn't not think about these things, even if I wasn't doing this job.
1: And then what made you choose to become a professor?
0: Well, I wasn't sure, um, and I I still don't know if this was the right thing. It seems like the right thing (laughs) to me. I've certainly doubled down on it. But I remember, I I won't give the name of the organization, so as not to to badmouth anyone, but I I was working for a pretty well-known financial institution. I was about 25 uh, years old. And I was doing a six-month, I believe, internship with them, working 40 hours a week. And I was in a department called the Organizational Effectiveness Department. And we were doing 360 reviews. And I remember doing some of these interviews and getting this data back. And I, I put it together and I created the kind of quantitative metrics for each person that was reviewed and then pulled out some selective quotes. And I gave it to my manager, who I think was an AVP. And this person says to me, Oh no, we can't get, we can't show them this. I was confused I was like, well, what do you mean? This is the data. This is the quotes. And she's like, this is much too harsh. We need to dial this back. And like, okay, you're my manager. I'll dial it back. And so I soften some of the edges on the quote and I then show it to her again. And she's like, no, we need to dial it back further. And I was like, Oh, I get it. Like, We can't tell the truth to these people about how they're acting because we're not a money-making center for this organization. These are high-level people, and we can't afford to upset them. And so the work that we were doing, at least on this, was meaningless. It was about not offending these people that were higher up. And I was so put off by that experience. I still wasn't sure kind of going into academia, going into the you know, corporate America, which way I was going to go. But I feared something like that would happen in the future. Like, you know, as a consultancy, do you how how harsh can you be, um, particularly if you're working in these leadership development, people development, organizational effectiveness in house? You're a cost not a profit center for the organization, or at least that's how you're perceived. Am I going to have to whitewash everything that I, I say and do? Maybe not. I'm sure organi- there's, a, there's certain organizations where that's not the case, but it, it pushed. It was aversive enough that I was willing to go very hard down the academic space, and I, you know now I'm glad I did. I don't know what that alternative life would have been. It probably would have been fine. But that's that was a formative experience that, that pushed me away from corporate America.
1: And what is one unexpected thing of being a professor?
0: I didn't realize how indulgent, like self-indulgent of a profession it is. I guess I should have known from the outset, but it is an amazing job. It's very hard to get. Like grad school, like getting through grad school is one thing. Defending a dissertation is another landing an academic job at a top tier research institution. Like those things are really, really difficult. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be where I am. Like anyone that says that there, there's not an element of luck involved is lying to themselves. There's a huge amount of luck um, for me and everyone else. That's a very good where we are. I mean, yeah, you have to try hard. You have to have some capability, but there's people that are no different than me that are not at a place like NYU Stern. But then when you get on the other side and you get tenure, you realize, oh my gosh, like, yes, I have to teach, but I get to talk in class kind of how I want. Like I get to phrase things the way that I want. Yes, I'm tethered to like research findings, but I I can structure things how I want. I can do this case or that case or this exercise or that exercise, or I can vent things on my own if they, I think they get to the right point. And I can choose the research questions that I want to go after. And I have like an incredible amount of, of freedom in terms of the time I get to do those things. Like, yeah, you better be working, like you have to get a lot done. But wow, is it self-indulgent? I think one of the forms of compensation of the in this job is its indulgence. And you're robbing yourself of that if you don't take a little bit of it.
1: And you just mentioned research a few times. What are the topics you feel passionate about these days?
0: I guess what I'm probably known for is the dynamics of social hierarchies. So status change, rank change, uh, how do people forecast the future in terms of, of rank and status and what does that do? Um, but the things that I've been really um, interested in recently in the, then the one thing that I'm just kind of rolling around my head, I guess I should say is the psychology of underdogs and favorites. We've, Um, basically started to carve out with some other researchers what it feels like to be an underdog or a favorite in a competitive setting. And then what are the consequences of that psychological experience in terms of your motivation, in terms of your willingness to ethically transgress in the interest of trying to win or phrase differently, not lose a competition. Underdogs and favorites are kind of these loaded terms. There's an inherent, I think, interest to it. And you can translate this to uh, certainly a, a corporate business setting. I mean, to consulting firms vying for the same book of business um, could be two departments, could be two people you know, two people that are ranked in terms of sales. Like these things are. I don't want to say everywhere, but it's not a a unique phenomenon that only happens on the fringe. Like there's inherently going to be expectations of who's going to do better or worse going into a competition, whether it be corporate America, athletics, or, or whatever else. The thing that I've been thinking about more recently is the idea of psychological baggage. So meaning like, what is the maybe you had a really difficult boss who looked and sounded a certain way when you're 22 years old. And maybe 15 years later, you have a boss that looks and sounds very similar. You have baggage associated with that type of person. Now the person that you have today versus the one that you're 22, this 22 might be entirely different as people, but there, you carry this baggage because of those formative experiences And so I I could imagine that this notion of carrying around baggage, either for certain types of tasks or certain types of people, for even certain types of organizations, these things that have happened to us that we carry with us into the future and then confronted with a similar situation, we bring all of that stuff to it.
1: So would that mean if I have this same boss say in quotation, the same boss again, I have this feeling like oh, I know that person, I know exactly what this person is like, without giving the person a chance to really prove me wrong. So
0: that's the idea. Now, mm-hmm. I, I want to say I'm just talking in speculation at this moment, like we haven't done the, the research on it. But I don't think it's debatable that we we don't enter new situations with a completely blank slate. Like we take our past experience and project that on ambiguous future experiences to try to make sense of them. And I, I think we probably do that mostly automatically. I worry that a lot of our research doesn't account for the fact that we're all carrying around these pasts with us. And I think the, an extreme form of our past is baggage like situations in which there's really an affective component. Like this person was particularly difficult or this certain type of task is particularly risky or this behavior is something that you need to be careful about. Like, so for instance, in my, um, in Jim Dietert's research, um, this idea of like even our lay theory about whether or not you would speak up, you could get, you know, wrapped across the back of your head by a teacher when you were 12 years old for speaking up. You might be carrying around the idea that that's risky until you're 35, even though the the current situation you're in might not be risky at all. Right. Um, And so this is all pretty new, ill formed I'm mostly just talking at this moment, but I'm realizing a common thread with some of my prior research on status change and rank change, like and even with underdogs and favorites, looking at the past to um, create an expectation about the future. I think this idea of baggage is a little bit similar from a temporal standpoint, taking part of the past and bringing it into the present to expect what's going to happen in the future, even if we're completely wrong.
1: Just thinking out loud that that must be quite difficult. I assume there's a lot happening subconsciously and I'm not really aware of it, so I don't even know which baggage I'm bringing to a situation and there's just something happening and I'm reacting, responding, but Mm -hmm. don't really know why
0: yeah and so that might be one of the the challenges in actually measuring this is if it is if you have to dig a little bit to get at it, how much are people going to be able to report this so that's going to be a research challenge uh, for us in in thinking through how do you we could we could theorize about what it is, but how do we actually go out and, and measure it and people it requires a certain amount of self-awareness and honesty uh, to get people to even report on it.
1: Yeah. Nice. I, I mean, at least it's already like really intriguing. Are you working then on an actual research paper on this?
0: This is just in the like discussion stages. Let's find a couple people that are interested in thinking about it, and then then dig in. Um, this is the fun part of research where there is no baggage. By the way. <laughs> we are just kind of in like ideal land. It's the doing of the research where there's, there's many more scars.
1: <laughs> Initially, you also mentioned the push and pull principle. I would like to find out what it actually is and what's important about it. Cause that sounded very intriguing also with the quote that you were sharing.
0: Yeah. 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 What we try to do at Stern is think about leadership and simplify it into these dimensions of push and pull. So Push would be, am I willing, am I able to, uh, be assertive? Can I speak up in situations where it might be risky to do so? Um, do I have the ability to make my voice heard? And the pull side is much more around, am I able to ask the right questions? Am I a good listener and really hear what people are saying? am I willing to step back and not speak to allow another person the space to do that? Because that's what's best in this moment. And so one of the things we'll say to students in class is if you, if you're the type of person that has no trouble speaking up, if you can be assertive when necessary, um, if you're kind of okay with conflict, congratulations, like you're halfway (laughs) there. That's good because you need to have those abilities. If you're the type of person who's, likes to listen is able to make space for other people, especially at the right times, um, can sense other people's emotions. So you get into the kind of emotional intelligence side, then congratulations. You're also halfway there. So one isn't more important than the other. Like you would need to be able to do both of those, um, the ability to assert and the ability to listen and, now, the the somewhat unsatisfying part of this is to say, well, when do you do which one? I don't think you can prescribe that so specifically. I think it comes with experience. And if I was to say, well, in this situation, you should definitely do this. In this situation, you should definitely do that. I think I'd probably be peddling snake oil because I don't think we can say that with any a huge degree of certainty. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but it, I am convinced that you need both of those and so there's a lot of thoughts about like what is leadership how do you do it what are the requisite skills and i'm more on the behavioral side of it like behaviors mm-hmm. as a leader and i'm pretty convinced that you need each one of those and what's what, what i think helps students is that most of our mba students can find themselves somewhere on that continuum oh i'm more of a pusher i need to work on this oh i'm more of a puller i need to work on that and back to the churchill quote about courage What's nice about it is that courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. It's also what it takes to sit back and listen. That's, again, why you're saying, like, what's one of the qualities that's so important for leadership? I talk about courage because it can be scary to get out of the way and cede control to other people. That's scary for some people. It can also be scary for some people to step forward and say something that's risky. That can be scary for people. And if you don't have some degree of some ability to overcome that fear, then you're not going to act.
1: Pure puller. Like, what do you recommend for that person to do to become more of a pusher, and vice versa?
0: So, I think it's easier to learn how to pull than to push. So, how do you, so to take this question in pieces? If we talk about how does a pusher become a puller? Well, I think prescriptively we could say a couple things. So, one, if you're listening to a person. And they finish speaking. Don't immediately jump in with advice. Certainly don't interrupt them. Don't immediately jump in with advice or with judgment, but just say something like, interesting, say more about that. Or that's okay. I, you take all the time you need. I want to hear your full thought on this. And then do a round or two of that to kind of give them that space. And chances are you're going to start to learn some really interesting stuff when they have to expound upon what they're thinking. And then after a few beats of that, you could give advice. Also, being I love this acronym WAIT W A I T, which you ask the question, "Why am I talking?" And the idea there is to say, when you're talking, are you talking because it's necessary for you to be talking at this moment? Or are you talking because you just feel like you should and you're taking up space? Would it be better for someone else to be talking? So asking being cognizant of the space that you're taking up and could it be better taken up by someone else? So those are kind of like this more prescriptive things I would say for how you think about taking someone from more of a pusher to being a little bit more balanced in the the push and the pull. The Moving from more of a puller to a pusher, I think, becomes a little bit more challenging. And I'll I'll just tell you what I say, but I don't, again, have data to say that this is what should be done. What I'll, I'll typically ask students is say, how many meetings have you gotten out of where you're then walking back to your office or you're commuting on the subway or you're driving home and you're just replaying the meeting in your head? And you're like, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I say that? Why didn't I say that? And when you're doing that, your mind is essentially saying, I should have said that. I should have said that. I should have said that. And to kind of make that a bit of a rhetorical question for people to say, how many more meetings do you want to get out of where you're plagued with that regret that you didn't say this or that? And by not saying this or that, you're letting other people kind of guide where things should be going. You're living a very reactive life rather than a proactive life. Now, that's, again, that's only a question, right? But we would try to start small and say, okay, so maybe it's tough to speak up in a meeting. But maybe, maybe with friends, maybe there's a, maybe you're a conflict averse person, maybe with friends, you know, push back on someone when you feel like you want to push back or you you feel like that would be necessary, but you might not otherwise do it or with a significant other or with a sibling or with a parent, like just showing yourself that you can step forward. Just those kind of like little steps, maybe professionally just seems too out there right now. That's fine. Start in some other place in your life to show yourself that you can disagree or you can speak up and then maybe choose a slightly riskier domain. Um, Cause it's not like we have like a work brain and a like personal life brain. Like we're not, you can't switch it on and off. Like they, they go between. And so I, I think there's, there's value in practicing in non-work situations, behaviors that you hope to transport later into work situations.
1: And would you then recommend to tell your friends or your family that you are working on those skills or just do it?
0: I, I feel a little, I feel agnostic about that. Because on the on the one hand, if you tell them, then they could support you and be like, "Good." Like I want to. They try to like pull some of that out of you back like, in the kind of the push and pull sort of way. They're pulling to get you to push. Um, they might be willing to to be a support system that way. On the other hand, it does feel a little bit icky being like you are running a, like a, a developmental test in your personal life and letting nobody know about it. I, I don't know. Um, that's why I, again I feel agnostic about it.
1: And another question, I also know that you are on the MBA Core Curriculum Committee to really also focus on the trends and skills that leaders need. Can you give us some insight on the leadership trends for the future?
0: It's it's really hard to do this in a, in a way that generalizes, um, because it's going to vary in some sense, place to place, industry to industry. On the surface, I will say this ability to the ability to know who to delegate to the ability to set direction quickly. I'm not so sure that those are going to be as relevant uh, going forward as is the ability to understand where other people are coming from, empathize um, and balance that idea of being empathetic and taking another person's perspective with also like pushing that person and holding them accountable for the things that you put in front of them. I think Balancing that is going to be very, very difficult. We, I think for, for many years, we, we've tolerated semi-abusive leaders. I don't think there's as much of a tolerance for that now than there was in the past. And I would say that's a good thing. But if the pendulum swings so far in one direction that everything's okay and we're going to coddle everybody, that's not good either. Because it's not even good for the person because they're not going to get anything done. They're not going to, get, they're not going to know where they've gone wrong.
1: So now you go so back some, to push and pull.
0: Exactly. You could talk about it that everything's a dichotomy. Um, that's going to be a tough needle to to thread. And I think, you know, these what Gen Z looks like, what millennials look like, trying to find a way of of leveraging that talent in a way that's good for them and good for organizations is going to be tough. Another thing to think about is, and I, I don't really want to go down this road because I don't. it it terrifies me as much as anything else is contending with AI and how is that going to get incorporated? How are we going to in the near term deal with the change that's going to happen with organizations in terms of humans versus machines and computers doing certain jobs and certain jobs becoming obsolete because of AI. So that's going to be a a challenge just transitionally. Um, but then also what tasks are we going to be privileging to ai and what are those that are we are going to kind of hold to the humans in the organization and who are the even the right people to adjudicate those decisions some of these questions are very philosophical and who are who are the voices that should be heard who has the kind of the ability to think in the level of nuance that's necessary to adjudicate some of these, these things. And so there's going to be a lot of leadership opportunities to try to be, um, amplifying certain voices. Who are the people that maybe I should be working to amplify that we should be hearing from for some of these questions. So, um, that's a a very inarticulate answer on that last part, but it's some, it's coming, it's coming fast. Um, and it's coming hard, and we're going to have to be contending with it.
1: And I have only two more questions. Say, what is coming up next for you?
0: What's very top of mind um, at the moment is I've got 220 NBA students this spring across four sections, maybe more than that, that I'm accountable for their experience. Um, I know that sounds strange, but... As someone who was shackled with student loans for a very long time and still has them, you know, I'm very cognizant of the money that these people are paying to spend time with each other and with me. It just feels like this huge responsibility that feels weighty to me, and that's coming pretty, um, pretty quickly this semester. I'm um, also thinking a lot about we're doing live cases in person for the first time. How is that going to go? Um, is this model, this kind of aspirational model that we've created, is it going to work in person,
1: but all good things. Oh, it's exciting. And my last question, um, who else should I have on the show?
0: There's so many interesting people, I think at Stern, for instance, Mike North in my own department studies, um, ageism differences across generations in, in the workplace. It's really fascinating and, and smart guy. Dolly Chug is, is remarkable in terms of her work on social justice. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a, a brilliant individual who's willing to kind of push the envelope. We need like diversity of thought in academia, and he's one of the people that's pushing for that um, very, very strongly. And there's so many people that I admire as researchers in my own department. I won't start to list them because I'll forget somebody and then I'll feel them.
1: Up. No, and basically I will ask you for an introduction afterwards. <laughs> Wonderful
0: people, I could, I could go on and on. And I'm happy to talk offline about Thank um, you. some others.
1: And if our listeners want to stay in touch with you, how can they do that?
0: My Stern faculty page. I don't have much of a social media presence, although I would like to plug um, the Leadership Accelerator LinkedIn page uh we just uh got that up this past semester and um our intention going forward is to post as much post content about all the exciting new things that we're doing at Stern whether um some examples of what our live cases look like what's the leadership uh, fellows program looks like some of the wonderful uh storytelling for leadership workshops that Hannah's putting on some of the executive mentors who have so graciously given their time to the students at Stern who are part of the leadership fellows program. All of that is, is coming quite quickly on the, the leadership accelerator uh, LinkedIn page, which is up. So I, I did want to plug that. I'd rather plug something dealing with the stuff that we're doing as a team rather than just myself.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Let's do that. So thank you so much, Nate. This was so, I really, really enjoyed our interview Thank you so much for giving me the trust and joining me.
0: No, I mean, you're a great interview. You Think about the push and pull side. Push, you decided to launch this and take that kind of like leap of faith to do that. Pull, you're really good at pulling things out of people so that you can learn about it and not take up the space. So everything's meta. Everything's push and pull. Yes.
1: Yin and yang. That, that's what I keep thinking about when I hear that. Exactly.
0: Well, it's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: So push and pull principle, huh? Now, I'm curious to hear if you find yourself more on the puller or on the pusher side. And as Nate said, one style is not better than the other. It's more about leveraging both styles to be truly effective as a leader. So if you are more of a pusher and you want to strengthen your puller side, then do the following. When you listen to somebody and they finish, don't immediately interrupt. Jump in with your advice and your thoughts. Instead, pause and then say, interesting, tell me more. You know, or something along those lines. Do that two, three times, and you will be surprised on what you will learn. On the other side, if pulling is already your strong suit and you need to become a little bit more pushy because you regret not standing up in meetings and let other people define the agenda, then you could start pushing back with family or friends where you're most likely more in your comfort zone Of course, push back when it also doesn't make sense. So you can show yourself that you can push back, you can step up, and then you do that in a slightly more riskier domain. You do it again, you show yourself that you can, and then you move your way up till you do that in a professional environment. And of course, I'm very curious to hear how those exercises work for you. So please feel free to tag me at Reaching Your Goals podcast or a delegate. And if you haven't hit the subscribe button to the show yet, please do so wherever you listen to your podcast. This way, you will get the next episode when it drops on Tuesday. With that, we are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.